Welcome back to the program. Few phrases get more used today than creative destruction. What it really reflects, though, is simply the way in which the world has changed. Our forefathers, in fact, the very founders of the nation, couldn't have imagined everyday things like air travel, the interstate highway system, telephones, automobiles, or even indoor plumbing, much less the Internet, the splitting of the atom, or globalization. So how is it that members of our third branch of government, the Supreme Court, hold debates about constitutional ideas in the context of what our founders would have thought? The answer to that question is Anthony Scalia. Appointed by Ronald Reagan in 1986, Scalia has had a profound influence far beyond his decisions and the world of court conferences. His ideas about original intent and originalism have taken hold as a principle of debate, and that very fact alone could be his lasting legacy. To understand this complex and egocentric man as this court term comes to an end, I'm joined by our guest, Bruce Allen Murphy. Bruce Allen Murphy is the Fred Morgan Kirby Professor of Civil Rights at Lafayette College in Eastern Pennsylvania, where he teaches American constitutional law and civil rights. His previous books include works about Brandeis, Frankfurter, and William O. Douglas. It is my pleasure to welcome Bruce Allen Murphy here to talk about his newest book, Scalia, A Court of One. Bruce, thanks so much for joining us. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for inviting me. It will be fun. Delight to have you here. It's hard to understand Scalia, I suppose, without really going back and understanding his Catholic upbringing, his roots in Catholicism, his parents, particularly his time at Georgetown. Talk a little bit about that underpinning. Yeah, you're exactly right. Scalia was raised as the only child of his extended Italian family. That's the only grandchild as well. And he was raised by his immigrant Italian father, who became a professor of Romance languages, in the pre-Vatican II conservative Catholicism. Uh, there was a belief that you could return to the original biblical sources, that the, the word and the meaning of the Bible would come from the Pope and from the Vatican, and it would be accepted by the parishioners. And there was a certain traditional scholarly nature to the religion that appealed to the Scalia family and guided uh, Scalia through his entire life. When he went to Georgetown, he made clear to his uh, uh, classmates that this was his view. Uh, in high school, people thought that he was so conservative he could have been a member of the Roman Curia. In college at Georgetown, he gave a valedictory address and, and implored his, uh, his classmates to follow the traditional Catholic ways. He said that we are the leaders of the Catholic tradition. We are the chosen few. If we will not lead, then who will? And I think a large part of what we see now in Scalia, on and off the court, is this desire to go back to a previous time, to an earlier world, to a simpler world, where the rules were black and white and they were clear, and the rules were very traditional, and to try to dial his version of the Constitution back to that earlier time. Within the context of that, though, and the ideas of originalism that he has really proselytized for, how does he reconcile those ideas and that attitude with the notion of separation of church and state as intended by the founders? Well, the answer is he doesn't reconcile them. He doesn't believe in the separation of church and state. It's very ironic that the man who says he's following the framers' intentions ignores Thomas Jefferson, who believed that the Constitution should be torn up every generation and they should start anew. He didn't think that the Constitution would last this long. 
Jefferson and the author of the First Amendment, James Madison, believed in what they call a high wall of separation, an impregnable barrier between church and state. Scalia doesn't believe in that. He believes in accommodation. He believes that the framers, or his version of the history of the framers, indicated that they liked prayer and they wanted to foster religion throughout society. It isn't true, though. The the, uh, framers were, in fact, deists. They were individual practitioners of their religion. They didn't believe in organized religion. And so it was pretty clear throughout Jefferson and Madison's professional career that they did everything they could to separate church and state. I think if you look at David Souter and his opinion in a prayer case for public school graduations in Levy-Weissman, Souter has the correct interpretation of the framers. He sees the need for the high wall of separation. But Scalia's version is we need more religion in society. More religion will get us back to where Scalia thinks society should go. Given those inconsistencies, then, the inconsistencies in this church and state argument with respect to originalism, and even the inconsistencies in the state's rights arguments, which certainly he he didn't adhere to in Bush v. Gore or in the Maryland DNA case and so many other cases where it's been situational, how is this inconsistency, then, caused his colleagues to take this originalist idea seriously at all? They are compelled to debate these questions with him. You will see John Paul Stevens and Stephen Breyer and Souter, as I mentioned. They will have sections of their opinions that will mention originalism and try to defeat the arguments. But I find it very instructive that the young conservatives on this court, comparatively young, Samuel Alito and John Roberts, they're not originalists. They don't follow Scalia's historical view. And... The one other justice who has an originalism point of view, Clarence Thomas, in fact uses a different variation of this approach. He bases his decisions in the Declaration of Independence. And if you look at his decisions carefully, he is a much more devoted originalist than Scalia. He has a libertarian point of view, protection of individual rights, and is very willing to overturn generations of decisions if they're contrary to where he wants to go. Scalia will pick and choose his cases for originalism, will sometimes use the test, sometimes not, sometimes shape the nature of his evidence to get the result that he wants. And so Scalia really is a true court of one, even in the area of originalism. He's all by himself on his own island. Certainly we know that presidents don't always get the justice that they think they appointed. Talk a little bit about what Reagan and the people around Reagan thought they were getting with Antony Scalia, or more specifically with Nino Scalia. Boy, Reagan got some of what he wanted, but he didn't get most of what he wanted. There were two Scalias coming back from his time at Georgetown. There was the affable Tony Scalia. He was the actor in college. He was well known as a gregarious, charismatic, dramatic fellow. Everyone loved him. And then there was the hard-driving, argumentative Nino Scalia. He was the championship college debater, maybe the best college debater of his era. He would do anything to win a debate, and he would use ad hominem attack, whatever it took, to crush his opponent. When Ronald Reagan appointed Scalia, he had a choice between Scalia and Robert Bork. He went for Scalia partly because he was a bit younger by nine years, partly because his health was a little bit better, 
partly because he'd been advised that Scalia was a more reliable conservative because they disagreed on one free speech case in the Court of Appeals, mostly because what he was looking for was to make history. He told his aides, I want to put an Italian-American on the Supreme Court, the first Italian-American on the court. Scalia effectively got a de facto affirmative action appointment. And to a person, every journalist, every lawyer, every judge who commented on what if, where they thought Scalia was going on the court said, you're going to get the fellow who will be the William Brennan of the conservatives. He will bring the conservatives together just like Brennan did on the liberal Warren court in the 60s. He will galvanize that group into a powerful voting coalition. He will be the leader of the court. But from the first moment that Scalia arrived, the person who arrived was not Tony Scalia, but was Nino Scalia. And he did everything he could to try to undercut his colleague in the moderate side of the, of the conservative wing, Sandra Day O'Connor, to take an opinion away from her, to try to demonstrate to the more senior judges that he was in charge and not them. And essentially, he isolated himself almost immediately. Given how smart that he clearly is, why did he do that when he could have been a much larger force on the court? Well, that's a very good question, and I'm not sure even now that we fully have the answer because his story is continuing to develop. You still see him do what he was doing earlier. He's still clashing even with Chief Justice John Roberts. I think that Scalia has a sense of certainty. I begin with an epigraph in the book, well, that's my view, and I happen to believe it's correct. And I, I think that what you have is a fellow who will not brook any compromise at all, believes that he has the right answer, and, and hopes and, and fervently believes that his colleagues will eventually come around to his point of view. It is not in his style, with the exception of the Bush v. Gore case that you mentioned, with the exception of the way he wrote the gun control case in Heller, uh, preserving gun rights. He's not in his style to negotiate with his colleagues and compromise his view to get their votes. He's much happier writing dissents, even for himself, and playing for another day a longer-range goal of creating a legacy that future courts may, in fact, adopt for their viewpoint. What could we have learned, if anything, about the Scalia we would get by looking at his work in the Ford administration and the Office of Legal Counsel working for Rumsfeld and Cheney? Well, what we could have learned in the Ford administration was that he was very adept at using whatever legal and political arguments he could find to reach the result that he wanted. Uh, he had worked very hard to get into the White House, to get into a presidential administration, as had Rumsfeld, as had Cheney, and all three men joined an administration that was a leaky ship, not a problem of their making. It was a problem that had been created by Richard Nixon out of Watergate. Every day there were leaks coming from the Ford administration. Every day there was a new article in the newspaper about a problem in the presidential administration. Every day, every day a new investigation by Congress. And, and they did whatever they could to bolster Ford's situation. But I think that was the genesis of all three men's views of a solid imperial presidency that you see in the Bush administration. What you see from Scalia from that point on is a, an ability to take whatever evidence is out there, 
work with the view that he has and try and marshal that evidence to reach his result. So whenever the administration came to him, or whenever, for that matter, black operatives in the CIA in the Vietnam and Southeast Asia War came to him, he would find a way to help them get their job done. It was the way he also argued later on the Court of Appeals. And those skill sets, I think, once on the court, freed of any kind of boundaries, he's now there as a life-tenured judge, he can do pretty much whatever he wants, and it's a much easier task for him to achieve his goals. How did Rehnquist view him, and how did they get along? You know, it's very very interesting, because I, I think Rehnquist was a kind of live-and-let-live chief, almost a laissez-faire chief. He was not one to impose his will or his views on other colleagues, even on the more moderate and somewhat uncontrollable Sandra Day O'Connor or Anthony Kennedy or later David Souter. From time to time, he would tell Scalia, stop doing what you're doing. You're angering Sandra Day O'Connor. And, and the two men did not agree on their conservatism. Rehnquist was a more pragmatic conservative. Scalia, a more dedicated ideological conservative. So when you get a case like uh, the Dickerson case in 2000, which deals with the Miranda versus Arizona standard. Should the police have to warn a suspect that he might incriminate himself before they begin to question him? Well, that's an issue that Rehnquist, as a young man on the court in early 1970, 1974 to be exact, he had said, I want to get rid of Miranda. But now in 2000, as the chief justice, he actually wrote an opinion saying it's part of the culture. We should probably continue it. And we should allow for the police to have to make these warnings to the, uh, to the suspects. And it was Scalia who was using the early Rehnquist views to chastise the chief justice. How can you make this decision? Didn't seem to bother either men. They, I think they were quite professional about what they did. But uh, Scalia's view, I think, is he's almost in an intellectual boxing ring in the court. And he's willing to take on all comers. He has no problem at all putting his views out there, and if people don't want to adopt them, he can be the lone wolf on the court, make the argument, hope that another day's court will take that view and go forward with it. There's also, as you talked about before, the the Tony Scalia side, the charming part, the part that's friends with Ruth Bader Ginsburg and goes hunting with Elena Kagan. Why wasn't he able to bring those charm skills in dealing with Sandra Day O'Connor? I, I honestly don't know. I think that probably their relationship was spoiled almost immediately in a very, very minor case. They were dealing with the issue of Native American inheritance rights. It was the very first case that Scalia was involved in in 1986. I think he was trying to make his mark, plant his flag on the court, show all the other senior colleagues, I'm your equal, I'm not going to serve as an apprentice. And he effectively tried to steal the case away from O'Connor. He didn't succeed. What was a minor case that should have been decided in a month took several months to decide. He lost the, uh, the affection and respect, I think, of uh, Lewis Powell, who was the swing justice on that court. And then three years later, when O'Connor appeared to drift away from what Scalia thought her position should be on the abortion issue, and she upheld Roe versus Wade in a case out of Missouri called the Webster case. Scalia just couldn't control himself and wrote in his dissent, she's totally perverse. This is an irrational decision. It's not to be believed. 
and made fun of the test that she had for viability uh, in, in the uh, in the question of whether or not an abortion would be allowed by regulation. I think once that happens, it's very hard to be in a negotiating posture with another judge. It just was a strategic issue, and I'm not sure that he consciously made that choice. I think he just had these views, wasn't willing to compromise, and wasn't willing to negotiate with his colleagues, and didn't understand that he had no more power than the other judges. They all have the same voting power. And some of them, when they're in the middle, like Sandra Day O'Connor, have a little bit more power in providing the fifth vote. Talk about his relationship with John Roberts. How does Roberts see him? Well, Roberts, is, is it's got to be a very curious thing, because Roberts is a, a quarter generation away from him. Roberts is in his 50s. Scalia is approaching 80. Uh, Roberts, I think, knows what he's got there. He has an ideological senior colleague who has made it clear that after 19 years of preventing the conservatives from coalescing under Rehnquist, he's going to vote on the far right wing of many of these issues, though not all of these issues. Roberts's view, I think, is I'd like to try to get consensus on the court. He said that in the graduation address to Georgetown Law Center. And Roberts, in the, uh, in the Sebelius-Obamacare decision, made it clear, I think, that he was willing to take notice of the dangers to the court politically if certain decisions were made in a far-right conservative direction. So he was able to write a decision in which he upheld the law based on the taxing power, as something that Scalia just didn't like at all. But he was also able to write a portion of the decision that, that voted along with Scalia and the other conservatives on the question of the interstate commerce power. I think that, that Scalia tends to say to Roberts, I wish you would make these larger changes now. Go big, if you will. Let's do what we can when we have the conservative coalition and not try to narrow the issue down to a smaller set of questions and then wait for another case to come along. But the larger prevailing issue is the image of the court, to which Scalia has contributed an awful lot to the negativity of that and the views in which the public holds the court. These are issues that are clearly of concern to Roberts. Yes, and this has been one of the contributions that Scalia has made to constitutional law in the court that I think will come back to haunt him. When he came to the court in 1986, the court was... In, at the end of its 16th year of abstaining from extrajudicial activities, there were a handful of speeches that were given between 1970 and 1986 because the court had taken serious damage publicly after the Fortis uh, resignation from the court and the near impeachment or the impeachment effort against William O. Douglas. Scalia set out almost immediately to change that standard. He's an academic at heart. He wanted to go out and see the people He's given hundreds of speeches. He gave 28 speeches last year. He likes to go out and teach law seminars. He likes to take questions. He likes to say controversial things. He's always in the news because of those answers. And he likes to say things off the court about his colleagues and about the cases that they have decided. It's not atypical for him in the summer to give his version of what the court has decided. And so he'll do things like call his living, evolving constitutionals, uh, uh, colleagues on the court, the mullahs of the West, 
and he'll say that their views are idiotic. And he'll say of Clarence Thomas, I'm an originalist, I'm a textualist, but I am not a nut. And what it does is it, it puts a target, a partisan target on the court. Oh, they're just like Congress. They're junior varsity politicians. Now I guess it's permissible to say things about each other on the court. And so we can attack the court just like any other political institution. And I think because of that, you've seen the popularity of the court drop substantially from what was in the middle 60%. At one point, it had dropped all the way down to 44%. And now I think it's up in one of the polls to 56%, but that's still pretty low. And there are ethical questions about many of the things that Scalia has done. Well, Scalia, I think, is a really ethical person. I am I am. I don't in this book attack his ethics. I attacks. I, I raise questions about some of his issues, some of the decisions he makes. But when you compare him to some of the things that were done, say by Abe Fortas, or some of the things that were done by William O. Douglas, there are far fewer ethical questions about what Scalia does. Of those twenty-eight speeches, the vast majority of them are ones that he got no compensation other than travel and. Uh, and uh, his, uh, his uh, meals and so forth. However, he has from time to time made some unusual choices. He, uh, he went to um, uh, a duck hunting uh, uh, journey in uh, Louisiana with Vice President Dick Cheney, who had a case before the Supreme Court at that time. And Scalia argued that under federal law, he did not need to step down from the case. He didn't need to recuse himself because a reasonable person wouldn't think that there was an appearance of impropriety. He also gave a speech at a campaign uh, strategy seminar uh, in California, which had connections to the Koch brothers. And, uh, and there were real questions raised about his presence there and later Clarence Thomas's presence. So he does make some choices involving just controversial things like appearing on BBC and saying it's acceptable to smack terrorists or torture them while they're being questioned or, or uh, making a, uh, a chin-flipping uh, motion coming out of a, a Catholic church after attending a Red Mass when the uh, photographer is there to take his picture. Those kinds of things put him in the limelight and raise serious questions about the choices that he's made but not necessarily about the ethical decisions that he's made. Has he become more extreme or more irascible as he's gotten older? He has, uh, he has seemed to become a bit more partisan. His behavior in oral argument in the ACA, the Obamacare case, was a bit unusual. He was taking ideas that had been floating around the week before in, uh, in blog sites and in, in uh, journalistic accounts asking whether the uh, government could force people to uh, buy broccoli and eat broccoli for better health, and talking about a deal that had been contemplated by Senator Ben Nelson of Nebraska, trading off uh, help from the federal government for Nebraska citizens and Medicare costs in order to get his vote in favor of the health care decision. These kinds of things, and some of the actions that he took in an Arizona immigration case dealing with the anti-immigration law of Jan Brewer's government in Arizona, he was actually from the bench criticizing a uh, press conference by President Obama 
that had not been part of the case, that had happened after the oral argument had occurred. And it, uh, Dahlia Lithwick of Slate uh, Magazine said, it's the first time I've seen an originalist interpretation of a presidential press conference. Those, those kinds of views, the states' rights decisions that he had in, uh, in the Arizona case, seem to indicate that he's drifting a little bit more toward the partisan side, but still claiming to use the same unchanging, enduring originalism theory that he's had all along. What do you think that Scalia's legacy will ultimately be? Well, I think partly uh, it's going to be an uncertain answer because we don't know where the court is going to go down the road. I had this same problem with William O. Douglas. Douglas, I think, was a visionary and laid out some wonderful markers for where progressivism and liberalism could go. Scalia has done the same thing in many of his dissents. He's laid out some wonderful markers for where conservatives could go. Here's how you can dial back federal power. Here's how you can increase state power. Here's how you can make decisions that will make America a more conservative, more traditional place. What we don't know is what the court will be ideologically in 15, 20, or 25 years. When that court, whether it's liberal, whether it's conservative, whether it's moderate, when they look for precedents, they will look back to Douglas's era. They will look back to Scalia's era. Whose decisions will they choose? So I'm going to hold that question in abeyance and deal with a different issue. I think his legacy for sure will be two parts beyond the actual case law. One, I think his originalism is here to stay. I've got a feeling that down the road, it will be part of the required steps of deciding cases to look through the history. But we have to understand that historians don't agree that all of the evidence is not available to people, but you can pick and choose among the historical documents and among the dictionaries that you will use to define terms. You can reach any result you want by the way you do your history, by the way you do your etymology. So I'm not saying that we will have originalist decisions down the road. I'm saying we'll probably see originalist arguments to reach the same decisions. And then beyond that, a big part of his legacy off the court is the kind of diminishing nature of support for the Supreme Court. I find it instructive that we're in the middle of what appears to be a court-packing style attack. It's been going along now for about a decade, a whole series of congressional proposals, proposals coming out of law schools to limit life tenure, to do things to limit the way the Supreme Court can decide cases, to call for the uh, public um, uh, broadcasting of oral arguments. That's the kind of thing that is part of Scalia's legacy. He's made the court a more partisan institution, and he's put a target on the court that has allowed people to say, maybe we should reform the institution so that down the road we're not going to have the same kinds of issues we have now. You know, it's possible to see, certainly, how originalism impacts these larger political cases. To what extent does he try to apply the same ideas to the more mundane, to business cases, to things like net neutrality and, and, and Internet issues and things that come before the court that seemingly can't involve originalism in any way? It must drive people like Stephen Breyer crazy. You know, I've just been playing with this very issue he does pick and choose when he will use originalism. 
In the Fourth Amendment, for instance, I'll get to the business question in a second with the current case in Hobby Lobby. In the Fourth Amendment, there was a case involving the police kicking in a door after three seconds because they heard a suspect, a drug suspect, running around, and they figured he was destroying the evidence, which he in fact was. Scalia would have had a perfect opportunity to say, well, let's look at originalism. What did the founders think? This was exactly what the founders didn't want. They didn't want the British kicking in people's doors and searching belongings. And it would have reached a result that would have helped the defendant. But Scalia didn't vote that way. He voted for the state. And so originalism was never mentioned. Breyer used originalism and was able to argue in favor of the defendant. In the business area, you're exactly right. A lot of these issues, originalism doesn't help you. Now, you can use originalism in larger issues like the nature and meaning of the interstate commerce clause, the nature and meaning of the taxation clause, the nature and meaning of federal power. And Scalia can do that when he has to. Rather than that, many times he will go to his other theory, textualism. Let me look at my dictionaries and see what the meaning of the statute or the meaning of the Constitution are. And the thing that I've been playing with is the case that's coming down in the next week or so, the Hobby Lobby case. Imagine what the framers would have thought of the idea of the owners of corporations being able to use their religious beliefs to choose whether or not they would follow part or all of federal law. Now, what would that look like in the framing era? So imagine that you're in Boston, and the British East India Tea Company has an outlet in Boston, and somebody who was part of the Tea Party is working for that uh, institution, and he discovers that the owners of the corporation now want to impose their Church of England views on the American who was in the Boston Tea Party working in the corporation. I can't imagine that the founding era people would have said, that's what the First Amendment means. Sure, why not? Originalism doesn't necessarily have all the answers. In fact, it doesn't even have all the questions. Bruce Allen Murphy, the book is Scalia, A Court of One. It's just out from Simon & Schuster. Bruce, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you, Jeff. It was great fun. I enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.